The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. Back in February 2007, Howard Marks sent a letter to investors in Oak Tree Capital, the fund manager he founded. He warned them of trouble ahead in the markets, and he was right. But he was also too early. As Howard says, quote, there were 19 months when being too far ahead of one's time was indistinguishable from being wrong. So perhaps it's not surprising that Howard, whose firm manages some $120 billion, is cautious in his predictions about the current market cycle. As Howard says, I think I'll be okay are dangerous words. Give a listen to my chat with Howard Marks. Thank you for coming by, Howard. Really appreciate that. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm really interested in the big sort of meta question. So you, um, you've, you've said that one of your edges as an investor um, has been your um, ability to kind of look at how history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but as Mark Twain once said, rhymes. Um, and yet you've written a book about this for every other investor in the world to now um, to do exactly what you've done and to create a billion-dollar company. Are you afraid that you're, you're giving away too many of your secrets with this? No, I'm not afraid, Rob. It, you know, it's one thing to, for people to know what they have to do, and it's a very different thing to be able to do it. And uh, I don't mind sharing those insights, and I'm, I'm working on the assumption that every, not everybody's going to become uh, great at this. Well, it's, it's funny. One of the things you, you point out is that the markets seem to have short-term memory, or sort of a, no institutional right. memory, of maybe five years at most, whereas cycles can be 10-plus years. Right. It's sort of... It, I mean. Do you think that investors will ever kind of narrow that gap and, and recognize or the market will ever kind of get to that point where it, it gets smarter? Or is this just a, the way compensation works and short-termism that's embedded in our system? I think that it is. It's everything you say. It's short-termism. It's, it is the effect of compensation. But I think more than anything is that people are hardwired to fluctuate between fear and greed, for example. Mm. And it's not so much that you can't remember the events of five years ago or 10 years ago. We can do that very well. Everybody can do that. Yeah. But it's the, it's the fact, it's the kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, when greed takes over, it makes you forget the cautious lessons of the past. And when fear takes over, it makes you forget the positive lessons of the past. I think that fear and greed are stronger forces than memory and prudence. And so they win. Right, right. Uh, when you, let's take a look at the cycle, as it were. I mean, you, where, where, how do you view where we are today? We're 10 years on from the, the great crisis. Um, we've had a, a tripling of the U.S. stock market. Um, you know, it certainly looks like the market is pretty ebullient out there. People are giving up their rights as bondholders. They're paying too much for stocks. They're paying high prices for stocks. I mean, where do you see, what's your sense of where we are in this cycle? Sure. Well, I think it helps to think of a cycle as an oscillation around a, a midpoint. And the midpoint might be the norm or the mean or the, or, or the intrinsic value or the right point or whatever you want to call it. But there's a midpoint, then we fluctuate around that. And so are we at 
a bottom? No. Are we below the midpoint? No. Are we above the midpoint? No doubt. Are we at the top? No reason to say so. You know, so all we can do is make a rough estimate of where we stand in that process. Um, now, you mentioned ebullience, and I don't detect a lot of ebullience. You, you watch TV, you don't see anybody saying this is their last best chance to buy stocks before they go to the moon or that kind of thing. Back in 99, there was a book published, Dow 36,000. You don't see that book being reprinted. So I don't see, I don't see a lot of bullishness. Hmm. You say, Howard, then why are stocks going up every day and why are people giving up their covenants and, and, and accepting narrowing spreads and so forth? Yeah. And, and my answer is that even though people are not thinking bullish, they're acting bullish. It is their actions that change the market. Usually their actions are the result of their attitudes, I think less so in this case. So if people aren't bullish, why are they acting bullish? Because in this low return environment, you have to embrace risk in order to get a high return. And uh, many institutions need seven and a half or eight pension funds, endowments, right. and many people are not satisfied with three, four, five. Uh, and so I do think that people are moving or have moved and are moving out the risk curve and taking more risk in pursuit of, of, of good returns in a low return world. I mean, it's, it's, is that sort of a bit of a description of the Hyman Minsky kind of moment, right, where, where there's that stability and things yeah. people were sort of storing up? Um, while it may not be this sort of we don't feel like we're in some sort of, you know, Dow 36,000 moment right. where people are banging right. the table. We are, of course, or investors are taking on risk without proper, you know, obviously the, the kinds of returns that they would expect. No, I think that's right. We were talking about memories. Things have gone awful well for a very long time. You know, uh, I, I wrote in my last memo that if you came into, you know, uh, it's we're more than 10 years past uh, the Lehman bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. uh, we are probably just about 10 years past the low point of the credit markets in October of 08, and we're nine and two-thirds years past the low in the uh, stock market in early 09. So memories have faded, and uh, anybody who came into this business in the last 10 years has really only seen good times. That's there have true. been very, there haven't been any terrible years. There have, been, have there have only been a few terrible moments, and they were quickly fixed. So the lesson of the last 10 years is things go up and buy the dips. Yeah. And, and so I think that attitudes are very positive. 10 years like we have enjoyed bring on one of the strongest emotions, which is FOMO. <laughs> and people are developing fear of missing out, and fear of missing out compels people to invest with some uh, eagerness and to lower their standards in order to participate. You know, Chuck Prince said, when the music's playing, you have to uh, dance. Uh, most people, when the music's playing, dance, rather than say, I'm going to sit this one out. Right, right. Well, I mean, so you said you don't think we're at the top, as it were, in the mm -hmm. markets. And, but what, will it, what are you looking for? What will be the, the, the markers that, that will help you determine whether, when we do reach that or are reaching that? And, and of course, remember you, I remember you um, 
you were quite bearish early on before the crisis. But as you point out, there were like 18 months of, right. of uh, pain yeah. because you were missing out, is it? Sure. Were. I put out a memo called uh, Race to the Bottom in February 07. Uh, it it, it kind of came true with the Lehman bankruptcy in September 08. Uh, everybody says, oh, great memo, you know, absolutely right, great timing. Well, I was 19 months early. Yeah. And there's an old saying in our business that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. Right. Uh, we have to be, we're never going to get the timing right, so we have to be willing to be wrong for a while. I'd rather be early than late. When do you think, uh, now you at Oak Tree in, in your career, you've, you've made, um, you made an, a, a extraordinary uh, profits by, in some ways, timing the default cycle well, right. so getting in and uh, right. to companies that were distressed or in the process of, of, of being distressed. And... Um, and playing that well. I mean, are you? How are you guys positioning yourselves in terms of, you know, when you think the default cycle will shift? Or you know, the next when we actually yeah, get it. You know, I cycle. hate the word when. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let Let's stick with weather. You know, I think that uh, we have gone now. Let's say, oh, nine was a year of high defaults. So ten through eighteen, that's nine years in a row of of defaults much below average. Yeah. We've never seen anything like this before. Uh, it is a result of the monetary policy, the excess liquidity, the QE, and the interest rate cuts that we've been talking about. Uh, so, uh, you know, we believe economy slows down, rates pick up. We believe eventually there will be some dis distress in this world. Uh, we raised a what we call a standby fund for distressed debt investing uh, roughly three years ago. Uh, eight and a half billion dollars, and it, you know, for the vast, vast majority of the capital has not yet been called, sitting on the shelf. Waiting for that moment. Waiting for that moment. We believe it's coming. I, I have absolutely no idea when. When it happens, as we know it will, um, given the erosion of covenants, as we discussed, yes. the, 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 yes. the, the, the willingness of bondholders to kind of you know, relinquish their rights. How would will it be more difficult to actually exert your rights under um, under the next default cycle? Well, just for the benefit of the listeners, covenants are protections that are baked into debt instruments, which say that the issuing company has to maintain a certain net worth, certain cash balances, that they can't pay out more than X dollars in dividends, they can't make more than Y dollars of acquisitions, uh, etc. So, in other words. Uh, they, they, they give some protection against deterioration of the issuer's financial picture. And in the generous capital market and the, and, and the capital market in which people have been fighting to put money to work by bidding against each other, uh, uh, a lot of covenants have been weakened. Uh, and uh, what that basically means is uh, nowadays when we talk about covenant light, for the most part, it means that companies have to satisfy the covenants at the time of issuance, but they don't have to satisfy them uh, on, on an ongoing basis. That's what we call maintenance. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what that means is if the companies don't have to pass financial tests as they, as they go along, that means that we don't have what are called technical defaults. We used to have, there's two kinds of defaults, money defaults, which right. means you don't pay interest or principal, and technical defaults, which mean you violate a, 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 a covenant. Yeah. You can't have those. Uh, it, where there are no maintenance covenants. So that means basically that, that, uh, that lenders have very little control over the developments at, at their borrowers unless they don't get paid. Hmm. 
And by the time you don't get paid, it's probably too late. So you're going to have a lot of companies that can zombie along, I suppose. They can zombie along. And the point is, the, the, the maintenance covenants protected it against deterioration. Now there's much less protection against deterioration. So we can't, you can't have technical defaults, which means that uh, they will go on longer. And when and if they default, there will have been more financial deterioration, which means that recoveries will be lower. Right. So, you know, uh, and, and, and the absence of covenants can, can mean a very low default rate for a long time, even when conditions become less positive. But when the defaults come, the recoveries will be worse. Yeah. And these are the things that, that a distressed investor like Oak Tree has to bear in mind and, and uh, juggle skillfully. Going around the globe a bit, I mean, one of the things we've seen since the last, since the crisis was uh, many emerging markets uh, have, have issued debt, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, co corporations, uh, and right. certainly we've seen, we've seen some issues, whether it's Turkey, Indonesia, um, Argentina. I mean, how worried, are, how, how worried should we be about that as, a, that as a potential source of systemic disruption? Yeah, well, I mean, everything's relative. So when the Fed takes rates to zero, Everybody says, oh, 3%, that looks terrific. If we could get 3% from a quality bond issuer, that would be nirvana. And what if we could get 6% from an emerging market country? That would be great. So people were eager to lend money. They, they went to the emerging markets because since they're usually questionable credits, uh, they pay more. Right. And by the way, they look like better credits in the, in the easy money environment. And so, yes, emerging market, especially countries, but companies as well, have been able to issue a lot of debt and notably denominated in dollars. Now, er, why? Well, if, 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 if I issue, offered you an Argentine debt denominated in pesos, you may not be so eager because you may say, well, I don't know what a peso is going to be worth when it matures. But if I offer you an Argentine dollar denominated debt, you say, fine, that's great. I have no currency risk. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it has been especially easy to sell dollar-denominated emerging market debt. There's only one problem. When they have to pay you, where are they going to get the dollars? Many of these countries and con some companies do not have access to dollars. Right. So they're assuming that, I don't know what they're assuming, but the point is that uh, uh, you're, you're, you're expecting somebody who does not come across dollars in the ordinary course of business to pay you off with a bunch of dollars. And the fact that people would willingly take on these risks is indicative of the lack of risk aversion, prudence, skepticism, fear in the markets. Right. It's one of the kind of indicators that, that I look at when I uh, do what I call take the temperature of the market. So, you know, a year and roughly a year and a half ago, Argentina with the history of five defaults in the last hundred years, was able to issue hundred-year bonds. That's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And, you know, in the book, there's a chapter on attitudes towards risk. And it is extremely important. It is extremely volatile. They change radically. In good times, what do people say? Risk is my friend. Mm -hmm. The more risk I take, the more money I make. And anyway, I don't see any risks that I'm worried about. In bad times, what do they say? 
bearing risk is just another way to lose money. I don't care if I make a dollar in the market again. I don't want to lose anymore. Get me out at any price. Mm -hmm. So the attitude toward risk uh, fluctuates volatilely. It's a pendulum. And uh, in May of 17, investors said, Argentina, fine. I don't see any problems. I think they're, they've got their act together. Uh, I'll, I'll lend them money for 100 years. Today, they say, mm, not so sure. Mm -hmm. So that bond is down 15%. You lost 15% in, in just a, in not quite a year and a half. Now it's time to buy it, I suppose. Well, uh, well take a I'll tell you one thing for sure. It's a better time. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> is it the time? Not so sure. Um, when the UK, you, 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 you mentioned that the UK had become uninvestable as a result of Brexit. I mean, what's, what's, your, what, what's your rationale on that? And, and you're someone who spent a lot of time I yeah, think, in London. Yeah, you know, nobody really knows what's going to come with Brexit. I'm not predicting a bad outcome. I'm just uh, citing uncertainty. Um, you know, it may not be terrible. The UK is not as export sensitive as many other countries in Europe. Uh, so the, the question is how much uncertainty do you want to shoulder? And that's political uncertainty, geopolitical. And are you happy with that form of uncertainty? You know, Oak Tree is, is, takes credit risk. We generally are not that interested in geopolitical risk. Right. I mean, and, and I mean, in one one sense, a hard Brexit, uh, a disaster for Britain would create opportunities, I suppose, from a distress. Yes, it would. And when those opportunities come, we may jump in. But that's different from saying we buy today in anticipation. You know, I read a great definition of Brexit or of the negotiation. Mm -hmm. It's the unspecified being negotiated by the unprepared to get the undefined uh, f for the uh, for those who don't understand. Yeah. Finally, your business. Uh, you know, we've seen so much money flowing into uh, passive investment, index investments. You are, you know, you've built a business around active management mm -hmm. and um, and value investing. Uh, are you concerned about this inflow into into the a sort of whole different asset class? No, I. You know, Rob, I don't. If you're talking about self interest. I'm not worried about it mm -hmm. in our field. I, I think it's going to be a long time before computers make uh, credit decisions with regard to things like corporate credit and a longer time before they invest in things like distressed debt. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in the so-called beta markets where almost all the performance comes from the performance of the market, uh, computers can put together portfolios uh, that will capture the performance of the market, no better, no worse. And th that's what index funds are. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a long time before they can make uh, great decisions like, you know, how much will a certain bondholder get in a given bankruptcy. Well, Howard, great to see you. Thanks for coming to Times Square. Great to be here, Rob. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. 